A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hey everyone, welcome to Dan Snow's History. I've got an episode of Warfare for you today. It's our special military history podcast. Go and subscribe wherever you get your pods. Presented by Dr. James Rogers. It covers, well, warfare from the early modern period, but particularly First and Second World War. So recently we've been doing a lot on Ukraine as well. It's fascinating stuff. He gets great guests. Enjoy this episode. It's an eye-opener. On Monday, October 17th, just last week, Iranian-made kamikaze drones were fired by Russia at the civilian centers of Kiev in Ukraine. Let that sink in for a moment. This was the first time that these Iranian weapons had been used against a European capital city, and it marks a new low for Iranian relations with the West, and it's not like relations were going well anyway. From the collapse of the Iran nuclear deal and the firing of missiles against US bases, through to the vicious crackdown on young Iranian protesters all around the country, it's safe to say that the hardline Iranian regime is not exactly painting itself in a good light. But how did we get here to this new low point in history? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers, and here on the Warfare Podcast, we often take the latest cutting-edge issues in international security and war, and we provide the context that we all need, that historical context, to understand what's going on and why. To help us understand Iran, I've invited Professor Ali Ansari onto the podcast. Now, Ali is Professor in Modern History at St Andrews in Scotland, and he is the world-leading expert on the making of modern Iran, from the Iran-Iraq War to the Iranian Revolution and beyond. So here is Ali Ansari on the making of modern Iran. Enjoy. Hi, Ali. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, and thank you for having me on. Not a problem at all. It's a good time, I guess, to have you on the podcast. I say good time with a slightly yes. sarcastic twinge because exactly. uh, Iran is most certainly not in its most stable condition. And in terms of its relationship with the West, it is perhaps at a generational low. But the trouble is, is that I've long been fascinated by the long history of Iran as a country with a rich culture of art, literature, poetry, music, food, architecture. And, you know, the ancient Iranian thinkers who wrote influential texts on philosophy and medicine. And I think it was Iranian mathematicians who invented algebra. It's a country that I really did, would I'm love afraid. to yeah. visit, Ali. But, you know, sadly, it seems like this isn't going to happen in the foreseeable future. So I, I guess with all of this in mind, where should we start if we want to understand how modern Iran, a very different beast from ancient Iran, came into being as this more oppressive regime that's now 
imprisoning its youth, suppressing women's rights, and supporting terrorist groups and hostile great powers like Russia around the world. Well, one place to start, obviously, is with the revolution of 1979, which really cast Iran on a different path in terms of its political development and the establishment of the Islamic Republic. And that's really when Iran becomes an anti-Western power. I mean, ostensibly, it, it had its revolution to be neither East nor West, as it was said for itself. But it's really had a turn East and pitted itself against the West. But I think in some ways, a better way to start is actually to look at the longer context, which is really going back probably to the 19th century, when you see Iran confronting the West or being confronted by the West. And the challenges that that posed to Iran, which had always seen itself as a great power, and the sort of the, certainly the regional power, but found itself then in the 19th century caught between the British in India and Russia in the north. So these two, basically, there were three empires effectively competing for influence, regional influence and power in the area, the Russians, the Persians and the British. And of course, Iran came off much the worse for wear from that encounter. And that's helped shape really its outlook ever since. I mean, successive regimes, whether monarchical or Islamic Republic, have tended to have at the heart of their, I suppose, identity crisis, their strategies, whatever, is this aspiration to restore Iran to a sort of a, what they consider it to be, you know, consider it to its rightful place in the community of nations. And by rightful place, basically, it means, you know, it's one of the great powers. So in some ways, it has a lot in common with countries like China, Russia, uh, to some extent, India, a civilizational power that's been hard done by with, through its encounter with Europe and Western Europe in particular and is really trying to sort of claw back a certain status it feels it deserves. So what's the cultural touchstone for that period of greatness? When Iranian scholars or politicians talk about returning Iran to its great times, is this kind of, you know, periods of the Persian Empire? Do we go back to Cyrus the Great? I mean, I live in Denmark, as many of our listeners know. And, you know, if the Danes talk about their greatness, it's the Vikings. If the British talk about it, it's the Second World War. What is it for Iran? Well, I think in the West, we often misconstrue this to mean a sort of a return to the ancient Persians, Cyrus, and so on and so forth. Now, the figure of Cyrus the Great is an enormously popular figure in modern Iran for various reasons, for obvious reasons, actually, in many ways. But in terms of Iran's greatness, it doesn't need to go back that far as in the Iranian consciousness. We're really talking about its position as a sort of a great power in the 16th and 17th centuries, even as an imperial power through the 18th century. So, in many ways, of course, in Iranian sort of the way they imagine themselves, they will look back to a pre-Islamic era, but not actually to the Archimedes era. They look in, in some ways to a Sasanian era, which is the great pre-Islamic empire in Iran and essentially sort of covered in territorial terms a larger territory than Iran occupies now, but certainly not as large as the empire of Cyrus or Darius or Xerxes. So we're really looking at in terms of their aspirational status. And you see that even today, to be honest, a sort of a greater Iran that is bounded, in a sense, by what we call the sort of four great, well, I wouldn't say four great rivers, but three sort of the Indus, the Euphrates, the Oxus, and then obviously up in the Caucasus. So three great rivers, if you will, and the Caucasus. Those are the areas where Iran considers to be a sort of its near abroad, its historical patrimony, if you'll put it that way. And one of the interesting things about recent history is that the US-led sort of global war on terror after 9-11 in basically fracturing Afghanistan and Iraq allowed Iranians to sort of imagine their past or realise their past in a way that hitherto they were unable to do. So prior to this, it was all really a bit of a literary sort of imagination. But after 2001, certainly after 2003, you find the Iranians are basically exploiting the openings afforded to them by the removal of Saddam Hussein and the the weaknesses of the Taliban, certainly at that time. 
Well, give us a bit more detail about that. How was Iran able to capitalize on that moment of the war on terror? Are we trying to say that there were power voids in the region that Iran was able to fill with both kind of legitimate political means, but also deeply clandestine means? We know for a fact that one of Iran's modus operandi of projecting its power across the region is through incredibly influential regional proxies, non-state actors, terrorist groups that Iran funds and pays to kind of do its bidding for it. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, basically, there was a vacuum, a political vacuum created, of which the Iranians basically filled. I mean, so the Americans and the coalitions are willing, you know, the British and the others weren't really, you know, having broken Iraq up, weren't really able to put it back together again in a coherent whole, or certainly not effectively enough. And the Iranians were able to sort of exploit that. And they did so really by influencing and infiltrating proxies, uh, having a better knowledge of the area than certainly the Americans seem to have. I mean, it was very striking in Iraq, that uh, there were strong religious links, obviously, between the Shia clergy in Iraq and Iran. The Iranians were able to cope with Arabic much better than the Americans were, largely through that religious angle. But also in social and cultural terms, there was a stronger affinity, and they were able to negotiate and navigate that political landscape far better than the coalition of the willing were. Of course, in Afghanistan, it was easier in many ways, because the language is the same, effectively. I mean, Dari is basically a version of Persian, So the Iranians were able certainly to make much more headway there. Certainly in western parts of Afghanistan, you have to remember that Herat, those western areas of Afghanistan, used to be part of the Iranian patrimony until the mid-19th century. So there are areas here where the Iranians have a long-standing cultural affinity, shall we say, political and cultural affinity, which they were able to exploit and then obviously translate into political and then military power through, as you say, the use of proxies. Now, obviously, they'll dispute the term terrorists or or others. They will use the term militias, you know, Shia militias, but certainly proxies. I mean, by and large, what they're doing is they are expanding their networks, paying local Iraqi Shia militias to do their bidding. And has it been a success? Well, many Iraqis would dispute it. I mean, the Iranians have basically argued that they have to have a degree of influence there as a consequence of the Iran-Iraq war. They don't want to see a threat emerging from Iraq again. But have they made Iraq a better place? Questionable. And I guess the pinnacle, the moment at which all of that came together was when General Soleimani was in Baghdad, in Iraq, liaising with some of those groups that they were supplying some high-tech military technologies to. Absolutely. And you see, Soleimani was an Arabist. By so, and this was the thing about his assassination in 2020, of course, is it knocked out for the Iranians their key link with most of these Shia militias. His successor is not an Arabist. His successor, Ghani, is a Persianist through and through and really has developed his experience in Afghanistan. So he's much more effective on the eastern border. But it's very difficult for the Iranians to rebuild and replicate the networks that Qasem Soleimani built, which was built essentially on his ability to both communicate effectively, but also by reputation. He built up quite a substantial reputation with the Shia militias. A reputation, I have to say, that was somewhat enhanced by the Americans themselves and other people in the West who constantly idolized uh, Soleimani in some ways. He made him out, I think, to be far more effective than he was. But nonetheless, it was a sort of an image that worked very much in Iran's favor. And it was certainly a moment during the Trump administration when Soleimani was killed, assassinated by that US drone strike, that you really started to see that the Iran nuclear deal and just in general relations between Iran and the West started to reach that generational low that I mentioned previously. Well, I mean, I think the assassination of Soleimani was more a symptom rather than a cause of that, to be honest. I mean, I think things have been... So essentially, you know, the idea that the nuclear agreement was, you know, obviously a possibility of a new opening. 
Uh, that possibility was always there. I had always been a, a somewhat more sceptical about the opportunity for the nuclear agreement to deliver what some people in the West thought it would. Certainly, even before Trump came into office in the election at the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, there were already problems with the way the nuclear agreement was being actioned. But certainly Trump's sort of unilateral withdrawal completely threw everything up in the air. It created huge rifts within the Western alliance itself, to be honest, between Europe and America. And obviously it turned things on its head with Iran and made Iran, it was an open goal really for the Iranians, what Trump did. But I think in terms of the relationship between Iran and the West, I think things have been bad for many, many years, actually. And in some ways, the agreement that was reached in 2015 marked a very small window of opportunity for making that better. Had the Iranians been more willing to seize that opportunity, I think a number of different things could have happened, but they had to move quite quickly before that window shut. And since that moment in 2020, for our listeners as, as broader context, you know, there were revenge attacks by Iran on US bases, the launch of precision missiles to attack, I think it was Ain al-Assad. Yeah, there was a base, yeah, I can't remember actually which one it was, but there was a base, a US base, which, of course, at the time, the Americans said had very little impact at all, but then subsequently had admitted that there, uh, and quite a number of their servicemen suffered from a degree of PTSD or certainly some sort of damage and it had a greater effect. I mean, the interesting thing is, is whether the Iranian strike you know, they say, how accurate was it? And had the Iranians deliberately, in effect, missed, you know, certainly to send a warning? As far as I'm aware, that's an open question at the moment, whether they were lucky not to have killed Americans rather than just provided injuries. The Iranians sort of said it was a warning job, but it's not at all clear that the missiles they sent them were quite so accurate that they were able to sort of provide a shock but not kill anyone. It seems more likely that it was quite lucky that nobody was killed. And so, I mean, it's that sort of luck that gives you chills. It does, yeah, because it could change things quite dramatically, couldn't it? Exactly. And we know now that, although Iran and Russia deny this, that Iran is supplying weapons to Russia, which in turn are being used. And at time of recording, it was actually just yesterday, Ali, that Iranian drones were used to to target uh, civilian targets in, in Kiev and, and rain down terror right. on the population there. That's so. Right. We're at this point here where things aren't going well between Iran and the West. And what I wanted to do with this episode was to try and take us back to provide that bit of context. So take us back to that moment that the Iranian revolution starts. What is it that causes the revolution? What ignites that tinderbox? Well, it's a variety of things. I mean, it, like all revolutionary movements, it's almost a conjunction of interests, a coincidence of interests, if you will. But I mean, obviously, a large part of it is the fact that the Shah himself had become increasingly despotic in his rule, in his political rule. I think he'd achieved quite a bit on an economic basis. I think it'd been quite progressive on, on a number of different levels. But politically, he was extremely restrictive. He'd become even more and more hubristic as he went on. And I think this created that reaction against him from a variety of different sources, from the left, from the secular nationalists, from the religious right. And these came together basically in a sort of movement to overthrow the Shah by the end of 1978. But a big factor in the overthrow of the Shah, of course, was his own inability to cope with the challenge that was facing it. I mean, yeah, I think he himself could not believe that his people were undyingly grateful for everything he'd done for them. So in a sense, the Islamic revolution, as it became to be known, although people at the time didn't define it as an Islamic revolution, of course, succeeded in part because the state itself had crumbled. The Shah had made himself the apogee, the linchpin of the system. And then given that his inaction basically ensured that, you know, the system didn't work, basically the system didn't respond. 
So as a consequence of that, basically, it unraveled alarmingly quickly in the final months of 78, so that by January 1979, the Shah had gone into exile. He was unwilling at the end of the day to do what Assad had done in Syria, effectively, which was to stand and fight at the cost of the destruction of his country, basically. So in some ways, you know, one might say much to the credit of the Shah, actually, that he decided, you know, quite early on that the game was up and the time was to go. But in so doing, he effectively, power was transferred to the revolutionaries. And then the revolutionaries themselves, of course, got involved in an internecine sort of civil war of their own, like all revolutions do in a way, between the left and the right. But basically, the secular nationalists, the liberals in the middle were squeezed out. They were finished. They weren't never great in number. It became a major, major confrontation between the religious conservatives, the traditionalists in that sense, and the radical left. I'm simplifying, obviously, here, but basically those two wings clashed. And at the end of the day, it was the religious conservatives, the religious right, who won in that struggle. Assisted in some ways, of course, by the start of the Iran-Iraq war, that ensured that people's attentions were elsewhere. And so that political fight was effectively subsumed under a sort of a national emergency for eight years and then re-emerged again after the end of the Iran-Iraq war, where these two different wings of the Islamic revolution or the revolution in Iran in 1979 re-emerged to basically contest what the revolution meant. You know, was it about a republic or was it about the establishment of an Islamic state? And ultimately, of course, uh, that Islamic state has won out over the republic. That's really interesting. I want to come back to the Iran-Iraq war in a minute because I don't think it's discussed enough when we're trying to understand the creation of yes. modern Iran and more of that martial militaristic state. You know, that's something that is forged in the crucible of war and an incredibly brutal war that because it didn't involve Western powers directly, we, we kind of gloss over. So we'll come to that in a second. But why was there such a disliking of the Shah? It, you know, when I read the history, the kind of common tale I'm told is that the Shah is a British, American, even kind of Russian puppet that's put in place. He's doing the bidding of these great powers. And it was only a matter of time before he was overthrown. And this was accelerated by the white revolution that the Shah puts in place, which is this aggressive period of Western modernization that kind of suppresses a lot of the landowners and clerics and, and everything else. And this is what causes them to rise up. To what extent have I just completely butchered that history? Or is there some truth to it? <laughs> no, I mean, there is some truth to it. But of course, it is a caricature in a sense. And it's obviously something that the revolutionaries might sort of put out. So, I mean, basically, modern Iran is really the creation of two key developments in that sense. One is a sort of a constitutional revolution that occurs at the beginning of the 20th century, which establishes the political parameters of the new state. You know, it establishes this idea of constitutionalism. It's much better in theory than in practice. It doesn't really work because what you're trying to do is to create a state from scratch, a modern state from scratch. And the creation of that modern state is really the product of the two Pahlavi monarchs that come after that, from 1925 to 1979, Reza Shah, the father, Mohammad Reza Shah, the son. Then between that, you get this period during the Second World War of the Allied occupation, Anglo-Soviet occupation with the Americans that come in afterwards, which sort of frees up some of the political landscape of the country. The Reza Shah, the old king, is sent into exile. The new king comes in, very young, very naive. There's a whole crisis over oil nationalization, of course, the nationalization of the Anglo-Iranian oil company, and then the Anglo-American coup, orchestrated coup certainly, that results in the overthrow of Mossad Der, this nationalist prime minister, often said in more, so we say, loose readings, democratically elected. He wasn't per se democratically elected. It's a parliamentary system. He was appointed by the Shah, but clearly was a popular figure 
He'd sort of like whipped up nationalist sentiment, went out against the Anglia Riding Oil Company, put Britain in her place, so on and so forth. In part with a little bit of, I mean, the Americans played a slightly more double-sided role in that. Then, of course, the Shah comes in and people then say, ah, he's a Western puppet. And to some extent, of course, there's an element of truth in that in the sense that he owed his throne as he admitted himself to this coup that sort of basically brought him back and established him as a much more definitive, I wouldn't want to say autocratic figure to begin with, because, of course, the Anglo-American intention was not that he would go around becoming autocratic or despotic at the end but partly as a means of the economic success that he had built in the country, the ratcheting up of, you know, the white revolution itself was in many ways an enormously successful economic program for the development of the country. What he didn't do in the white revolution was match the economic success with political reforms. This was his big mistake. He basically educated his public and then told them to bog off, essentially. So you have this mass education program building up a huge cohort of educated youngsters and then tell them that they can't get involved in politics. You know, it's a sort of self-defeating. If you're going to educate your public, you have to give them a sort of avenue in which to exercise their thoughts. And he didn't do that. Instead, he grew increasingly hubristic and on the back of what he perceived to be the economic success he developed. And he always used to say that democracy only works when people are so well, you know, when everyone has a PhD was the rumor, you know. And as people said, you know, when the hell is that going to happen? It's not true anyway, I think we can safely say. I mean, it was sort of like a bizarrely (laughs) different, you know, he said, well, democracy might work, it might work. You know, he was very sceptical about all this. So basically what happens is, is that, The idea that he's a Western stooge, I think, is very, very simplistic in the sense that actually by the 1970s, there's enough evidence to suggest, really, that the tail starts to wag the dog. You know, the Shah, after the phenomenally oil price shock of 1973-74 after Yom Kippur, but the Shah has a major role in the ratcheting up of the oil price. I mean, most of us forget we always see this as an Arab oil boycott. Actually, it was the Iranians who really pushed it at the end of the day. And he multiplied the level of income Iran could have. And of course, this put the Iranian economy into a sort of a burnt out, it's not the right term, but I mean, it was so overheated that effectively inflation, corruption, so on and so forth rose. And because of the lack of political reform, you see, of course, because of the lack of a sort of a a legal framework for all this stuff, you know, this economic growth just became chaotic. And this really, at the end of the day, is why the revolution sort of builds up against him. He was able, effectively, to alienate everyone, including those who should have been really his staunch supporters. And of course, he was, at the end of the day, a pro-Western ruler. He certainly saw a lot in the United States, Less so in Britain, but there was a relatively close relationship with Britain. But I think it would be wrong to put him down as a puppet. He most certainly was not a puppet by the end of the 70s. He was increasingly confident in his own abilities, and that was really, in some ways, his own undoing. And then it's also a key consideration about his personal health, because I believe that he has quite late-stage cancer at this point and puts up this show that him and the family are going on holiday. But that's the last you see of the Shah, and then he's dead within 12 months. Is that right? Yeah, so he was diagnosed with cancer in the early 70s, which he kept extremely secret. Now, interestingly, had there not been the stresses, shocks, and strains of the revolution, I suspect his cancer would have been managed through the 80s. He himself, interestingly, in a private discussion with, believe it or not, Tony Benn, who goes to see him in 1977 to discuss uh, nuclear cooperation, of all things, with Iran. He reveals in a discussion with Tony Benn that he plans to abdicate in around 1985-86. And he said, then I will mentor my son through, and he sort of has this idea. So he has this vision of him going on. And my sense is that the cancer was probably manageable. And it was really the stress of the revolution that killed him.
Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. From this point onwards, things start to get worse for many people in Iran. Like you say, this is an incredibly well-educated population who have enjoyed certain freedoms that we have in the West. And these start to get oppressed very quickly. You have the implementation of Islamic laws uh, that women have to cover up, uh, laws around education. There are mass protests. There are people put into prisons. You can't publish certain materials. There are many, many of Iran's youth who are simply murdered. And it's at this moment that you start to see the shaping, the making of the Iran that we see and know today. Yes. I mean, I, I think what I always said to people, I say that the Islamic Revolution and Republic doesn't have any of the virtues of the Shah, but has multiplied the vices, if I could put it that way. I mean, it's, you know, I think there were various trajectories the Islamic Revolution could have gone in the Islamic Republic. I think there was an opportunity really in, at the end of the 1990s for it to take a much more Republican, moderate route. It decided not to for various reasons. And this sort of tension, I mean, the best way to look at the Islamic Republic is to really see it as a sort of a hybrid, an unhappy, I almost call it an unholy alliance or an unholy marriage between Islam and republicanism. They tried to marry these things together. And for many years, they tried to, to argue that actually it worked, you know, that they had produced something new, that the Islamic Revolution had produced a new type of political system. In the event, actually, this marriage proved very unsuccessful. And the reason being, really, that the Republican elements that we would find familiar, I mean, basically, the Republican side of the Constitution in Iran is largely lifted from the French Fifth Republic. I mean, it's very familiar. But they, what they did is they sort of like loaded on top of this, this whole sort of uh, panoply of Islamic sort of revolutionary government, which basically gives absolute power, and I mean absolute power, to this supreme leader, this supreme jurist, this guardianship of the jurist. 
And it means really that at the end of the day, all the things that we would find familiar. So if you were a young person in Iran and you'd say, ah, the Constitution guarantees my right to freedom of speech and, um, you know, the right to gather and the right to join a trade union and all this sort of thing. But then what the Islamic element of the Constitution says is that you have the right to do all these things, it says, unless it contravenes Islamic law. And who has the right to define what is Islamic law? Ah, it's this supreme leader who basically has the final say in all this. So basically all these, quote, rights that are sort of enshrined in the Constitution under that sort of republican element, they're not inalienable in any sense. <laughs> you know, they're basically at the prerogative of the supreme leader. So the whole thing is a bit of a mishmash. So you have all of these rights in the world unless the Ayatollah exactly. says no. Exactly. Now we're going to go into some more detail about the really quite harrowing accounts of what happened during the Iranian Revolution in our episode next Monday, which is with Nazrin Parvaz, who was sentenced to death just after the Iranian Revolution uh, for her work on human rights. And, and she was sadly terribly tortured during that period, but survived to tell her story. And so if you don't mind, Ali, I'd be really interested to go back to that topic of the Iran-Iraq war, because this is parallel to this moment of suppression in Iran. And it must have had quite a substantial domestic impact. Could you say that because of the threat of Saddam's invasion and his forces um, trying to kind of overthrow Iran, that they saw it as justifiable to suppress their public? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think the, and also the public became more tolerant of this. I mean, when you're facing a national emergency and a war, and remember, the Iran-Iraq war is the first modern war fought by Iran, by which I mean it's the first war that basically involves civilians. You know, it was the war of the cities, the bombing, the missile strikes on, on various cities. It's as close to a total war that the Iranians have known. So it is a, a matter of national emergency. And, and when you're trying to impose a much more restrictive or sphere political and economic life, you can justify it and people will put up with it. So in the sense, the imposition of mandatory hijab, the veil, which, you know, many women opposed. I mean, there were huge protests right at the beginning of the revolution against this, saying this is not why we've had a revolution. Of course, the minute the war starts, um, these sort of protests become unpatriotic. So it was easier for them to impose various things. Now, the interesting thing is the longer the war went on, of course, the more the government had to relax some of these things, because the more war fatigue settles in, you've got to keep your population on side. And therefore, some of these restrictions, some of these sort of impositions begin to be relaxed a bit. But after the war is over, then you then say, oh, all these people have died, all these martyrs died for what? They died so we could have a better Muslim country or whatever, as they sort of argue it. That's a matter of debate, but that's the way they put it. And of course, again, that's used as a way to emotionally blackmail the population effectively. You're offending the blood of the martyrs by not wearing your veil properly. That is fascinating. The things that a state can do in times oh, yeah. of supreme emergency. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So those who did try and, and rebel against these new Islamic laws and regimes, were they branded as spies or agents of the West or agents of Saddam that are trying to bring down the country? I mean, they didn't really have to go. I mean, those who were politically active, yes. Those who are believed. But those, for instance, who are breaking social infringements, say, for instance, the Vela, it's not so much that they're seen as agents of the West, not in a deliberate sense, but they're seen as corrupted and we have to sort them out. So it's different. It's slightly different. But if you're politically active and are seeking a change, then yes, you know, you're immediately a fifth column, you're an agent of Western imperialism, so on and so forth. So it all depends on your, on your ambitions. 
and take us into the details of the war itself, because you know many people might not know that this isn't a short war. This goes on for eight long, hard years. And there's some that claim that at least one million lives are lost. This is a war between 1980 and 1988 that we've largely glossed over in which a million lives are lost, Ali. Yeah, so let me correct you on that from the start. So the million lives lost is something that comes in, and as all military historians, you know, would sort of say, the minute you get into figures of a million, you ought to start sort of being a little bit more sceptical of what the Iranian regime is saying, because that's what they use. And you see this a lot. In fact, I'll do a mea culpa for you now. The first edition of one of my books actually has this figure in it. I sort of say a million casualties. I'm a little bit more aware. I don't say deaths. I don't say, I say casualties. A bit more. But still, subsequently, my research revealed that I was looking at people that the Iranian government did their own research on the level of casualties and deaths and whatever. And it turns out that the total number of fatalities, fatalities we're talking about here, from the war is around 220,000. So, I mean, obviously, there's a lot more injuries. Okay, you can add that wounded and people, you know, with gas and damaged lungs and so on and so forth. But the fatalities basically taken from the official statistics, and, you know, we can assume some of it's an underestimate, but certainly from the official statistics of those who were claiming payments as a result of their martyred families, so the payments that were going out, the total is, I mean, the, the figures are somewhere between 188,000 and 220,000. I would go for the 220,000 because I think over the years, obviously, people die of their injuries and so on and so forth. But we have to put that in comparison. It was a very, very bloody, a very violent war in terms of its frontline battles, you know, the very sort of First World War and its outlook, in a sense, trench warfare. But at the same time, the level of casualties is a fraction of what the British suffered in the First World War, which was a shorter war. So I think sometimes there's a mythology about the war that's been built up partly to justify political process today. So when we go back to our idea about you're shaming the blood of the martyrs, obviously, if you say a million people died for this, that's a big thing. You know, if you say, well, you know, 220,000 people died for it, it's slightly less, you know, it's, it's still pretty bad, to be honest. But, you know, people can then start to say, well, hang on a minute, it's not quite comparable to the Second World War, is it? Or it's not, I mean, but the million creates a much more emotive sort of sense and it allows political actions to be taken in the name of those martyrs. So I would never want to diminish, obviously, the suffering that was occurred. But I think it's important that we correct the record in terms of the casualties, because people, you know, the commentary is normally half a million Iraqis, a million Iranians. And, you know, if you take a one and a half million deaths, it just puts it in quite a different category of conflict, if I can put it that way. You see, that is so important to clarify. Mm. I'm glad I made the mistake, although I feel like I've been... No, no, it's very common. I mean, it's very... I mean, I hear it all the time, to be honest, and I constantly have to say to people, don't... I mean, I even hear Iranians say, because, I mean, I was listening to a colleague of mine who said, you know, so many people died, and then they have these inflated figures about the number of young people died, or teenagers. Now, there were, and the point is, is obviously you and I discussing this, nobody wants to underestimate, obviously, or diminish the level of case. Just, it's still a terrible figure, 220,000. But it is, you know, interesting for me, it's the subtlety about how, what political use you make of the more inflated figures, you see. That's the point that I'm saying, is that my kind of unintentional regurgitation of Iranian propaganda shows how, number one, how successful it has been in kind of being a pervasive figure that's pushed through into the common literature. And number two, it shows how important it is to the understanding of the modern Iranian state. This is a a nation shaped by war. And if we think about it, you know, 1988 isn't that long ago, or at least I'd like to think it's not that long ago. (laughs) And so if you think about the political leaders who are in charge in Iran now, they cut their teeth during that war. Their entire political and military sense of the world is built around that conflict. That's right. 
That's right. And there's a whole mythology. I mean, I wrote a piece recently on the whole mythology of the war. And, of course, the real beneficiaries of the mythology of the war are the Revolutionary Guards. The Revolutionary Guards have built themselves up as the sort of the leaders, the chief defenders of the state, those who can... Now, actually, if you look seriously at the Iraq War, the units that bore the brunt of the fighting actually were or certainly the organisational and strategic side, was the army. It was the regular army. It wasn't the Revolutionary Guard. And many of the most serious casualties were taken by the Islamic militia, known as the Basij at the time. They were the ones that were going over minefields. Now, the Revolutionary Guard got better as it went on, but it certainly was not there in the front leading the way. I mean, basically, it was part of a collective effort between the army, the Revolutionary Guard, the Basij militia and others. But in the aftermath of the war, the IRGC, the Revolution Guard, have basically taken all the spoils. As far as they're concerned, they were at the front. And recently, even in the last two years when I was looking at it, a number of military, naval, military others, but the regular armed forces have complained that their own role in the war and the defence of the motherland has been somewhat whitewashed out of the narrative. That's what we needed to know. And thank you so much for bringing us that history to the podcast. Would you say it is that combination between the Iran-Iraq war and the Iranian revolution that when we do analyse them together and see how they interplay with each other, that really do help us understand why Iran is the way it is today? Do you think they're the most important legacies that help us see how this regime has been able to survive up to now? I think if you're looking at the leadership and the political establishment, yes. I mean, they, 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 you know, for them, the Islamic Revolution is, you know, D-Day. It's basically the found, the foundation myths of the state are all there. And then add to that the Iran-Iraq war, this tremendous sacrifice. It creates also that sense of a country under siege. It sort of feels it was basically, it's essentially a sort of a revisiting of the blitz mentality in that sense. So the Iranians had this notion it was us alone against the world. Um, you know, a lot of this is embellished in order to give legitimacy to the establishment. Now, interestingly enough, for many younger generations, of course, this is all dim and distant history. They're not particularly interested in it. If you look at the current demonstrations in Iran, they're not remotely interested in, you know, what the revolution or the war was about. It's ancient history for them. So it hasn't had the same effect. But the revolutionary leadership has maximized, in a sense, the, the bloodshed, the sacrifices shared. Another figure that people don't really realize is until the Shah left in January 1979, the total number of fatalities in the lead up to the Shah leaving the country is about 2,750. I mean, that's nothing, actually, when you think about it in the great revolutions of the world. The vast majority of casualties occur afterwards in the civil war that takes place between the left and the right. So, but if you listen to people in particularly the political leadership, they'll say, you know, 50,000 people died to overthrow the Shah. Nothing close to that figure. Nothing close to that figure. And, and their, their own figures show that. So, you know, when they're serious about it, when you look at scholarly articles in Iran, they'll acknowledge actually that the level of casualties to the overthrow of the Shah were relatively slight for a revolutionary upheaval of the nature that you had. But it's certainly something that's embedded within the psychology. If you want to understand the way in which the Iranian leadership look at the world, it's forged in that sort of revolutionary and war generation. And the legacy of that for them is enormously important. But the question for us as historians is to what extent has this been embellished really for political purposes? And what extent is it true? To be honest, that's an ongoing debate because we don't have actually as much information as we would like 
And for reasons that you've highlighted yourself, of course, the West has been curiously uninterested, actually, in the Iran-Iraq war, you know, because we're not sort of like uh, combatants or involved in it. But actually, you know, when you talk to people who are like us, a bit more interested in military history, you know, everyone sort of says that, you know, rather than start everything with the Gulf War in 91 or in the second Gulf War of two, you know, we should really be looking at the Iran-Iraq war as the context for that. It's a much more significant well, exactly, because Saddam is then bankrupt from the Iran-Iraq right. war, yeah. and so he invades Kuwait to get yeah. money. Yeah, I mean, he raids the biggie bank, basically. I mean, they, 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 and it was very obvious at the time. I mean, you know, you could see what was going on, because he was bankrupt. He'd, he'd indebted himself to the West, effectively. The Iranians, on the other hand, interestingly enough, because they were sanctioned, actually came out of the war almost with a balance of payments, sort of like, I mean, it was okay. I mean, it was sort of steady. They weren't in huge deficit, because they hadn't been able to buy anything. So, you know, what they did buy was from sort of, North Korea or whatever. So, so it wasn't going to cost them a huge amount of money. So they had no reason to, you know, for them, they actually came out of the war as much as they, it shattered the economic, you know, the, the, let's not have any, you know, underestimation of what it did to the Iranian economy and politics going forward. I think it, it, it shattered it in many ways. Still, they probably came out better than the Iraqis did. Wow. Well, Ali, thank you so much for debunking so many myths <laughs> about all, this history. For, for telling us just so much of the important points of that recent history that help us to understand the modern security, international security and environment of war that we're seeing today. I think it's kind of the classic case, as I heard you speaking, I was thinking of the words of Charles Tilley, who said, war makes the state and the state makes war. It's war. Yeah, so, yeah. Ali, can you tell us where we can read more of your work? Where can we read more about this history? I suppose there are three books, and the book on the Islamic Revolution and the Islamic Republic is actually the first book I wrote, which is called Iran, Islam and Democracy. But that's quite a large term, and it charts really the history of the Islamic Republic from revolution through to the end of the reform movement and a bit of Ahmadinejad. Actually, no, it goes up right up to the J.C. period as well. Then for those who wish a little bit more historical background, I've got a um, book on modern Iran from 1797, I have to say, James, so a bit earlier than we would be, but, but it creates a sort of good context of where we're going. And then a third one, which is, looks very particularly at nationalism in modern Iran, called the, as you might suspect, the politics of nationalism in modern Iran. So, you know, take your pick. And there are a few other shorter pieces, but I'm very happy for people to go and pick one of those, or even two if they'd like. Or even three. Well, we will put a link. Or even three. <laughs> we will put a link to your books in our thank show so notes. Ali, thank you so much for your time. And if I can urge our listeners next Monday to tune in to Nazrin Parvaz to hear about the details of surviving the Iranian revolution, which will really dovetail what we've been talking about today perfectly. Ali, thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. But before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.